0: Welcome to the 27th episode of Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles, and it's always a pleasure to feature absolutely wonderful guests from the standpoint of excellence in their particular sports. It's such an honor to speak with uh, these wonderful individuals every time, and, it, and it's also insightful as well. And this gentleman is no different. And, uh, yeah, I want to introduce him as someone that that is really one of the top pitchers and one of the top human beings in the history of Major League Baseball. He was drafted by two different in, in two different sports leagues in 1984 out of high school, the National Hockey League and, of course, of course, Major League Baseball. He chose baseball and went on to become a two-time National League Cy Young Award winner, which means he was the best pitcher in the National League that year, 10-time All-Star, World Series champion with the 1995 Hot Hotlanta, Atlanta Braves, as well as most valuable player for that World Series that they won. He is one of 24 pitchers in Major League history to win 300 or more career games, and he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2014. It's my honor to talk to here. Mr. Tom Glavin. I call him Tom Terrific Part 2. How you doing, sir? <laughs> thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. It's a pleasure to, to talk with you, and, and there's so much to talk about. And, but first of all, what is Tom Glavin up to? Where are you at? And how's your family doing uh, through this unfortunate situation we're going through with this pandemic? Uh,
1: thankfully, everybody's doing good, thanks. Uh, everybody's healthy. It's been... Um a little bit of a blessing in the sense that, uh, my wife and I have five kids and they're kind of all over the place. So we're, um, almost empty nesters. So we have two that graduated college. Uh, we have two that are currently in college and we have an 11 year old six rising sixth grader. So, um, for the most part, only the, the, the 11 year old has been around. So, uh, uh, it's been pretty quiet. So the, the blessing, I guess, with, uh, the COVID lockdown is that uh, all of our kids have been around for the most part. So yes. it's been nice and that having everybody here. It's been, uh, we've had more family dinners in the last three months than we've had in the last three years. So uh, that part of it has been great. I know everybody's kind of trying to find their way, you know, with, um, with the two college kids uh, and our 11-year-old online school was a challenge. Uh, certainly not what they signed up for certainly uh and, and i can't believe i'm even going to say this but certainly not as fun as going to school was mm-hmm. uh, as much as they probably don't want to admit that um i think they missed the normalcy of school right. and their and friends and all of that so um that's been a challenge and i think for the older ones uh trying to navigate their way through this virtual world and and actually working uh in the virtual world so uh it, like everybody you're 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 challenged to find new ways to do things. Mm -hmm. Uh, You try to find the blessings in what you're doing. I think, again, family time has been great. Um, I think slowing down has been great. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, not going out every night to a restaurant or feeling like you have to do something all the time has been fun. So um, a lot of it has been a blessing. But look, at I and my family, like everybody else, um, we're – we are itching to get back to normal, whatever that new normal is going to be. I think we all recognize it's going to be a little bit different, um, but I think we're uh, we're looking forward to uh, that challenge of finding our way in this new world.
0: Well, no, absolutely, and that's the way to look at it. And reflection too—a lot of time for reflection. You get to slow down, you know, for sure. Definitely. Wow. So here with um, Baseball Hall of Famer, Tom Glavin on the 27th edition of Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles. And we're going to talk a little bit about your kids a little bit later. Um, a lot to discuss, though. Tom, you were born in Concord, Massachusetts, grew up in uh, Belarica. And your parents, Fred Sr. and Mildred, uh, they, they really encouraged you and your siblings, uh, Fred Jr., as well as Denise, uh, your sister, as well as Mike, your younger brother. They encouraged all of you to follow your dreams and passion of sports. So um, talk about how um, they really influenced and inspired you guys to be the best as you can be.
1: It's a good mix. I mean, you know, my, my brother, my brother, Fred, played some sports growing up. He was a baseball player, soccer player, swimmer. Uh, My sister, she dabbled in a little bit of stuff here and there. And then my younger brother, Michael, uh, similar to me, hockey and baseball and always stuff. So, you know, it was a good dynamic. I mean, my dad, uh, you know, construction worker and, you know, worked long hours um, but always seemed to find a way to uh, get his work done on a given day to coincide with going to one of our games or one of our practices or things of that nature. Uh, You know, I know – For me, when I was playing high school baseball, uh, you know, I'd hear my dad leave at five o'clock in the morning to go to work because he knew I had a game at 330 and he was going to get his work done and get home for that game. So, um, you know, very hard working, um, certainly got my work ethic from my dad. My mom uh, worked for a long time. Then she became a stay at home mom when my younger brother Michael was born um, she obviously was the, um, quintessential mom. I mean, you know, dinner on the table every night and, and running us around where we needed to go. And, um, you know, she was the stubborn one. So I got my stubbornness from her. So it was a nice mix, but, um, you know, it was, it was a, it was a, it was a wonderful environment. You know, certainly a lot of how I am as a parent, uh, coincides with how my parents were with me. And, and I think the biggest thing was, uh, for me with my parents was just, Um, you know, the time that they gave me, whether it was taking me to a game or taking me to practice or helping me with homework or, you know, that kind of stuff. um, That that was what was so valuable to me that I try to give to my kids as as much of my time as I possibly can. And, um, you know, like I said, it was just a, it was a great situation. Um, My brothers uh, and my sister were all obviously very supportive of me and what I was doing. And when it became apparent that uh, I was going to have a chance to go uh, play baseball at a higher level, certainly, uh, hugely supportive of all that. So, um, it was a great dynamic and, and, you know, my younger brother was kind of, uh, my shadow, so to speak. He was always, always either the stick boy on my hockey team or the bad boy on my baseball team. Uh, and it was great because we eventually got to play a, a couple of games together in the big leagues. That's right. With the New York Mets. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, it kind of came full circle and that was really, really cool. But, um, you know, like I said, it was, uh, I've always said it. I've always told my parents if I could be half the parent to my kids that they were to me, then, uh, then I will have succeeded in life.
0: Wow. Well, you certainly are. You have succeeded. You have been an exemplary parent for sure for what you've done with your kids for sure. Like, it, it's evident, you know, definitely. Um, and that's the great thing about, you know, generationally passing it forward. And it's so important to be in a healthy household And because and, and you, you're able to really facilitate that. Who were the athletic – and, or as public figures, you were into growing up because you excelled in both baseball and hockey. So, growing up in the Boston area, so, um, you know, hockey was probably my bigger
1: love. And, and I think at that point in time, uh, the Bruins were a little bit more successful than the Red Sox. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I loved Bobby Orr. Uh, you know, I loved yep. Cheevers when I was a kid, Phil Esposito.
0: Ooh, yep.
1: And I think at that time, as a Red Sox fan, you know, everybody loved Yaz, Karla Skrubsky. Oh yes, Carlton Fisk. Um, so you know that. Yep,
0: Carlton Fisk. Yeah,
1: <laughs> seventy-five World Series, one of the greatest in history. <laughs> A bad outcome for me personally, but um, you know, those were kind of my guys, and and you know, I always said, look, I didn't, I didn't really idolize anybody other than probably my dad I mean my dad was the biggest influence in my life obviously so Mm -hmm. he set the example for me and that was the example that I ultimately wanted to follow but certainly those you know those Bruins those Red Sox those were guys that were that were doing something that I inevitably wanted to do and wanted to be a part of so uh, you know those were the guys that I looked up to in those sports and knew that someday I you know I wanted to be like them in the sense that I wanted to play in the NHL or I wanted to play in uh, Major League Baseball whichever one I was fortunate enough to get a chance to do.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's deep that those Red Sox teams, you had Jim Rice, you had Carly Shremsky, you had Dwight Evans, the longevity of those guys is pretty crazy, you know?
1: It was. No, and I remember, you know, I used to love going I used to love going to Red Sox games and would sit in right field bleachers behind Dwight Evans and would get there for batting practice and I'd watch him in the outfield catching fly balls and just watching that arm. He had an arm like, like nobody had. So uh, to watch him uh, get into position to make a throw, I mean, I used to do that. When I was playing Little League uh, and playing the outfield, if I had a fly ball come towards me, I would emulate everything that Dwight Evans did from the standpoint of positioning myself and getting ready to catch the ball and be in a position to make a throw. And I didn't have the arm that Dwight had. But, um, you know, those are the things you do when you're a kid. You watch those guys, you emulate what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you try to translate it into your own success. So I mean, it was um, it was fun watching watching those guys play uh, as I was growing up. And like you said, they had they had some longevity there with the Red Sox. So I got to yeah. watch for quite a while.
0: That's right. And Freddie Lynn didn't stay there, but another guy with a long career, you know, for sure.
1: He caught the Boston area by storm when he came up. I mean, mm-hmm. him and Jim really, you know, those two guys. And that's right. 1975 really burst on the scene. But Freddie had Freddie had a a little bit of more of a a spectacular season that rookie year. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, mainly because he used to make so many uh, acrobatic diving catches out in center field that, you know, obviously would catch your attention. Uh, You know, Jim hit a few more home runs, but Freddie seemed to be the guy that was always making those diving catches.
0: Yes. No, no question. No question. Great games in the late 70s with them and the Yanks. I mean, great rivalry. Of course, that continued from the past and then, of course, continued into the 90s and 2000s for sure. You know, so and, and quick question. You're you being a Red Sox fan, that 2004 American League Championship Series. I mean, how fascinating is that to you till this day, especially with them being the only team to come back from 0 three deficit?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, you didn't expect it, right? But it just show you um, how momentum can quickly change in that sport. And, you know, something as simple as uh, Dave Roberts stealing that base, and then the Red Sox ultimately winning that game. And then, you know, that's the nature um, of when you're you're that underdog. That's what's always dangerous. When you're the team that has the lead and you have a chance to put a series away and you don't, uh, there's always that danger of giving the other team new life. And I think, that was, uh, that was very evident in that series. The Red Sox got new life. And with each passing day, each passing game, they got more life. And, uh, you know, they, they played with, uh, hey, what do we have? What do we got to lose? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, we're playing to try and have one more day. And, and it's just amazing how that momentum – swung in their favor and ultimately uh, enabled them to win that series.
0: That's right. It was, it was great to talk with Johnny Damon on the 11th episode of, of Where They At about, you know, how he fully reflected on that moment <laughs> for sure. So, yes, indeed. Wow. So, Tom, now, it was funny. I saw that fellow major leaguer Gary Sarcina Came up in your town, as well as um hockey. In hockey, uh, uh, NHL winger Tom Fitzgerald, both your age. Like, did you were you guys like playing a lot of sports together? Um, I played actually played high school high
1: school ball with Gary. Uh, mm-hmm. He was uh he was my second baseman uh, his junior year. Uh, I'm sorry, his sophomore year, and then uh, moved to shortstop. Uh, uh, my senior year. So he was uh he was a really good player. Uh, even then, you could see that he was a good player. He's going to get a he. You know, certainly was going to get a chance to go on at a minimum at the college level. But, uh, you know, proceeded beyond that, played major yeah. league ball, had a great career and has Became had a- – an
0: all-star too, yeah.
1: Great career as a coach now for a long, long time. So, uh, you know, he's, he's uh, really made a, a living for himself in baseball and, and uh, you know, so happy for him, especially, like I said, being my teammate. But Tommy Fitzgerald and I played against each other a little bit. He went to um, – you know, I went to Bill Ricca high school. He went to one of the Catholic uh, private schools that uh, was one of our rivals. So we would play against each other a little bit, uh, got to know a little bit, uh, got to know each other a little bit more after uh, I got out of high school and he went in to uh, play professional hockey. Uh, but same thing with him. He had a nice career in the NHL and has really, really uh, had a great career as a front office executive. So uh, he and I will, he and I will talk from time to time uh, about some different things. And um you know, it was fun. His, his son uh, was playing at Boston College the same time my daughter was at Boston College around that. And then with Gary, um, I've had the opportunity to run into Gary a little bit more frequently now that he's been a coach with the Mets. Mm-hmm, uh, that's right. last couple of years, I had the opportunity to run into him when they were playing the Braves and I was doing some broadcasting for the Braves. So it's, uh, it's been nice catching up
0: with him, too. Oh, yes, indeed. Well, here with Tom Glavin on the 27th episode of Where They At. My name is Nabate House. Tom Glavin's Baseball Hall of Famer, one of 24 pitchers in the history of the game to win 300 or more games. And we're going to talk about the 300 club as well, too, um, a little bit later. So now, Tom, you were drafted by the Braves in 84, as well as the Los Angeles Kings in 1984, which is interesting. Um, now, you wanted to – I remember – hearing an interview where you said that you wanted to play college, playing both sport, be in college, playing both sports, and you couldn't find that college. But I was thinking, what about a big 10 school? There was some big 10 schools that had both, you know, like I was wondering, I, I wanted to ask you that.
1: <laughs> oh, it's funny. I, back then, maybe they did. I either, I didn't know, or they weren't, weren't recruiting me. So I don't know, but uh, it was a situation where, you know, coming out of high school, um, I had, a, I had probably, I think three really good baseball teams after me. And I had three, uh, what I consider to be really good hockey schools after me. Mm-hmm. So I had, uh, I had Miami, I had, had Oklahoma state, um, and somebody else that I can't think of off the top of my head, I forget, but then I had, you know, I had uh, university of Maine. I had Boston college, Boston university, mm-hmm. um, RPI in New York. I had all those schools coming after me for hockey. Um, and the problem was that most of those schools didn't have both sports uh even back then you know a team like Boston College you know they've got a great hockey program now a great baseball program playing in the ACC back then baseball was a club sport for them so
0: interesting
1: uh, yeah so it was the kind of thing that I wasn't really ready to give either one of them up going into college I wanted to try and play both and that may have been naive to think I could do that but uh but I wanted to try and do that and 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 so I ended up where I was going to go as a school back Back in the day, it was called University of Lowell, which is now UMass Lowell. Mm-hmm. Um, hockey East school, really good hockey program. They've won a national championship, uh, and their baseball program was really good back then too. They were a, a perennial powerhouse in Division Two. They've now since moved to Division One, so it was good. Ba- it was good baseball. It was good hockey. It was good education. It was close to home, uh, so it fit all the. It checked all the boxes, so to speak. I didn't have to. I didn't have to give one sport up, I didn't have to get too far from home, which. Uh, was important to me as well, but um, you know, kind of thing that there's a part of me that wishes I had the experience, but uh, certainly don't regret the decision that I made.
0: Right? I mean, being drafted in the second round, too you you gotta go ahead to the to the big league level for sure. And then the fourth round pick in the NHL draft that's 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 pretty serious, Tom. Uh, it's like I say a lot. I
1: mean, um, it was a really it was a really cool week, a really cool couple of weeks as an 18 year old kid in high school to be to be drafted by two sports, uh, graduated high school. I mean, you want to talk about, uh, being on top of the world. I mean, uh, it didn't get much better than that. Um, so I was fortunate. I was fortunate that I had, uh, I had options, you know, whether it was to go to school or to sign and play professionally. And, and, you know, really the dynamic is so different in the boat in both sports. I mean, in hockey, they draft you, uh, they own your rights for five years. So my conversation with the Kings was really short. It was basically, you know, hey, Hey, we drafted you. We know you're going to U Lowell. Uh, you're going to go play hockey there. We'll talk to you. Go, you know, after your junior year, we'll see where things are at. Uh, but just know we're going to we're going to be watching. Okay, fine. Um, in baseball, they only hold your rights until the next school year starts. So, yep. you know, when you get drafted in baseball, they want to sign you. They want to get you in your system. So, uh, the Braves were very aggressive in coming to me and sitting down and talking with me and my parents and. Uh, you know, trying to get me to sign. And, and, you know, it was ultimately the kind of thing where when I sat down and tried to do the pros and cons of both sports, I was really, uh, truth, truth be told, I was a, I don't want to say I was a better hockey player at that point in time, but I was a more polished hockey player than I was a baseball player. I was very raw at baseball. I just had a good arm and good talent, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And uh, hockey, I was, I was very, very much more refined in that sport. So, um, it was not a, a, let's say a, that easy of a decision, but once I started weighing both sports, you know, back then in 1984, hockey, hockey players weren't playing into their mid-30s like they do today, yep. making a lot of money like they are today. The health, the health risks were greater. Um, you know, baseball, you're, you're 25 years old and baseball, you're, you're hitting your prime and hockey, you're past your prime. Uh, you have a chance to play hockey a lot longer. You have a chance to make a lot more money. So all those things were certainly factors. But, you know, the one thing that I settled on more than anything else was, you know, as a hockey player, coming out of high school, I was six feet tall. I was 175 pounds, and and that was a dime a dozen. Mm -hmm. Uh, In baseball, I I was left-handed, and everybody was looking for left-handed pitchers. So I figured that was an advantage that I better try and make use of. So uh, that was ultimately why I chose baseball, and uh, thankfully it all worked out.
0: Oh, that's for sure. That's for sure, Tom. And, and it's funny that you said that you were raw, but in three years you made your major league debut. That's pretty deep because it takes, you know, it doesn't take, it takes a longer time for high school pitchers to be able to make their, uh, their debut in the show. How are we able to develop so quickly in those three years?
1: Oh, it's a combination of things. I think once I finally got into an organization and actually started getting some pitching instruction Uh, I took to it pretty well you know it's the kind of thing like people will you know in today's world where you know kids are taking lessons for everything uh, you know people will always ask me oh when did you start taking pitching lessons honest to god my first pitching lesson was the day that I showed up in 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 Atlanta Braves rookie ball that was the first time I had ever gotten any instruction about pitching the only instruction I ever got was 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 from my dad, from things he used to hear Warren Spahn say. He was a huge Warren Spahn fan. Oh, yes,
0: yes, indeed.
1: He would say, hey, I heard Warren Spahn say this. Or, you know, if I was struggling with something, he might say, well, Warren Spahn does this, so try that. And, and that's what I would do. Um, and I would just go out and pitch, and I would figure things out. Uh, but once I got into the system and started actually working on my mechanics and working on a delivery and doing all those things, you know, it, it certainly helped. And, and, look, I'm not – I'm not saying I didn't go into the minor leagues with talent. I obviously had talent, and I think more than anything else, my talent carried me early on in my minor league career. And I made a, you know, I made a pretty swift jump through the minor league system. And and you know, I was fortunate in the Brave system that you know, being a high draft pick, being an organization that was in flux a little bit, they were kind of rebuilding at the big league level. Uh, all those things lend itself for me to have a, you know, pretty quick rise through the minor leagues. So long as I was making progress and doing my thing. And I did from year to year, I got better Uh, from year to year. I put up the kind of numbers that warranted me moving on to the next level. Um, So it was a pretty, it was, it was really quick in that regard. I mean, three years is pretty quick. I think for the most part, you're going to see guys do it in four or five years. Uh, But for me, three years was quick. But like I said, I think it was a combination of, you know, really taking to the teaching that I was getting, but also being, being in an organization that, um, was really rebuilding and rebuilding uh, through their minor league system with pitchers, and I was one of those guys that uh, they drafted with that in mind, and they, and they pushed me.
0: That's right. You know, you along with John Smoltz and Steve Avery, too. I think Steve came up – he's a little younger than you, right? He came up in 1990. So, so yeah, yeah, a little was, after you. Yeah. Yeah, wow. And Leo Mazzoni, was Leo Mazzoni in the minor league system at that time?
1: So he was. I had a little bit of um, crossover with him in instructional ball. So, um, you know, instructional ball, essentially you play your minor league season. And then at the end of the minor league season, they have a back then it was like an eight week um, uh, camp almost where they brought in their top 25 prospects. And you would play, you know, another eight weeks worth of the season. And, you know, you might play four or five games a week. Um, and then have a couple days off where you're just practicing. You might play a game where, you know, they throw different situations at you. You'll go out there, and in the first inning, you got a guy on second base and nobody out. All right, let's go. Get after it. See if you can get out of this. So uh, it was really much – it was really um, true to the what the name of the league, you know, being Instructional League. That's what it was. It was a lot of instruction, a lot of situational stuff, but an opportunity to play a little bit more. And, and my first two years of Instructional League, uh, Leo was down there. Leo was the pitching coach. So, uh, I, I had a, an early introduction with him there. And then ultimately, you know, a few years later in 1990, when, uh, when he took over as pitching coach, when, when Bobby took over as the manager.
0: Wow, that's right. And it's funny how Bobby Cox, you know, his first run with Atlanta in the late 70s didn't really work out. But then, hey, he got that second chance. You know, now it's Hall of Famer like yourself. For sure. You had growing pains, you know, the first three seasons or so in the bigs, you know, you struggled. And and, and that's, you know, that's typical with a young pitcher, inconsistency. But who are the vets? That really helped you uh, helped keep your head up, and helped you uh, help give you the advice to to help you improve and and see the light at the end of the tunnel.
1: You know, there were a couple of guys during that point in time. Uh, Rick Mailer, who has since passed away, was uh, oh wow, was a big help. Okay, Smith was there. He was, um, you know, he was still fairly young, but he had some experience under his belt. And I had some veteran guys like Bruce Suter was there. Uh, Bruce Benedict was uh, one of our catchers who yes. was full. Uh, and then, you know, a guy like Teddy Simmons, who uh, one of the smartest, uh, smartest baseball people I've ever been around. And, and you know, those guys were, were really helpful because, you know, it was, it was the kind of thing that back then is different than today's game. Back then, it was not uncommon at all. In fact, it, it happened almost every night that, you know, the game was over. You'd sit in the clubhouse after the media had left and you'd sit down, you'd drink a couple beers and you'd talk baseball. Uh, And and I learned so much from those guys just in those conversations. And, you know, it's stuff that you don't think about. I mean, you don't think about sequencing pitches to a hitter necessarily. You're not thinking about situational stuff and and why you do this here, but you can't do it there. You know, you're young. You're just trying to get your feet on the ground. You're trying to figure yourself out. So, you know, those conversations were, were so valuable in terms of, you know, learning the game away from the game, so to speak. Uh, because you know, when you're on the field, you're, you're locked into what's happening on the field and that situation that you're in at that given time, when you're talking about it away from the game, you know, you have a little bit clearer picture of what you're talking about and what you're discussing. Cause when you're in a game, it's the, the mayhem in your mind of what's going on and the things that are going through your mind. It's, you know, it's hard to slow things down and think about it. Um, but when you get away from the game and talk about it outside of the game, you can kind of see some of those things and then it makes it a little bit easier to implement those things and slow the game down when you're in the game and actually start to focus those that way. So, you know, those guys were really, really helpful in just, you know, bouncing things off, listening to their conversations, learning from them, you know, implementing things here and there that I would hear them say that helped me. So, um, you know, those are all the kinds of things that as I got older and became more successful, those are some of the things you try to give back to some of the younger guys that come through to start having some of those same experiences that you had as a young player.
0: Wow, that's deep because I forgot that Zane Smith played with the Braves because I remember him with Pittsburgh. And isn't that funny that how you opposite sides of those great series in 91 and 92 against the Pirates? (laughs) I mean, he was there for a short while and then, yeah, went over
1: to Pittsburgh and, uh, you know, did a nice job for Pittsburgh over there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, look, a guy for me, like I said, very helpful because he was still relatively young. He was left-handed. Um, so I could relate to him, and and it was helpful.
0: Well, absolutely. Here with the great Tom Glavin, Baseball Hall of Famer, one of 24 pitchers in the history of the game to win 300 or more games in his career. Here on Where They At, my name is DeBate Isles. So, Tom, now, the 1991 season, worst to first. I mean, what made it click? What made things click for this team to, to be one game away? one win away from winning the world series.
1: Everything fell into place. Look, we, you know, if anybody on that team told you in spring training that they thought we were going to win our division, go to the world series, they would have been lying and they would have been crazy. Uh, there was nothing that in, in anything that we were doing uh, that, that made us anticipate that was going to happen. Now, having said that, we knew going into spring training in 1991, we were a better team. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at 1990, Overall, was not a great year, but the second half of that year, we were, we were a pretty good team, uh, and we had myself, uh, Smulti, uh Pete Smith, uh, I can't remember, I think Avery was there. Um, when you look at our numbers as a pitching staff the second half of that year, I want to say our earned run average was almost two runs better than it was the first half of the year. Uh, so wow. part of it was really starting to come. And then you had, you know, David Justice out in right field that was, you know, winning a rookie of the year.
0: Right.
1: Uh, you had Blauser. you had Lemke, you had uh, Ronnie Gant. But so at the end of 1990, you could see we got a pretty good nucleus. And it was the kind of thing that you could see kind of that going into the future, we were going to – we had the chance to be a pretty good team. Now, having said that, the Braves front office, Scherholz, and Bobby – uh, really accelerated that when they brought Terry Pendleton in to play third base for us. They brought in Sid Bream to play first base for us. Late in spring training, they made a trade for Otis Nixon uh, to go play center field. And then we had Raphael Belliard, uh, premier shortstop, that was on the bench for us. So what that really did was it really enhanced our defense, and it, and it gave guys like myself the confidence to go out there and pitch and throw strikes and make the guys on the other team put the ball in play because these, we knew these guys were going to catch the ball behind us. Um, you know, that's not a knock, but I guess it is to some extent on some of the teams leading up to those years because we didn't have some great de- some great defensive teams. And you know, as a pitcher, when guys aren't making plays behind you, it makes it a little bit harder to have that mentality of hey, just throw strikes and make them put it in play and let your guys work. Well, if guys aren't making plays behind you, it makes that a little that that approach a little bit tougher. But now all of a sudden you see these guys and they're making plays. It's like, okay, wait a minute. Now we got something here. So I think that really gave all of us young pitchers a ton of confidence uh, to be more aggressive, to be in the strike zone more. Um, And then it was just the kind of thing that took off. I mean, we had some ebbs and flows. We got off to a decent start. And then, you know, right around Memorial Day, I think we were tied for first or in first place, Mm -hmm. uh, which was the deepest in the season that, that the Braves had been in first place in a long, long time. Uh, then we had a little lull going into the All Star break. Um, and I want to say, going into the break, we went from, I don't know, two or three games out to like seven or eight games out. We had a little losing streak before, before the All Star break. And, you know, I remember coming back from the All Star break and uh, we had our workout and Brett came in. And, you know, I remember Bobby saying, listen, we're still very much in this thing, we're one week away. One good week away from getting back in this thing, and I'll be damned if we didn't go out and win seven in a row and the Dodgers lost seven in a row. Uh, and then it was, here we go, game on. Uh, and the rest of the year, it was just electric. I mean, to see, to see the way the passion just, just took over that city of Atlanta that year, uh, I mean, it was crazy. The, the crowds were unbelievable at the ballpark. You know, we'd be driving down the interstate going to the ballpark and somebody would recognize you in the car and it'd start doing the tomahawk chop on the highway. I mean, it was just – it was really, really a fun year. The only bad thing about it was the way that it ended. I mean, it would have been storybook had we gone on to win that World Series that year. But, um, you know, that was the only downside to it. The rest of it still in a lot of ways, uh, you know, World Series season included, it's still in a lot of ways – that 91 year was the most fun and the most electric of of all the years that I played.
0: Wow. That's right. And, 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 uh, that world series was the most intense that I've ever seen. I mean, just, it was two teams that was so evenly matched. It was, it was kind of like, you know, a prize fight, 12 rounds and, and each round being one and but that one knockdown at the end or something, or a point being taken away or something. How deep was that? How, how, uh, you know, how much of, of a cardiac rush was it for you guys?
1: All right. I mean, listen, it was a great series. We certainly had our opportunities, uh, you know, game seven, we had the bases loaded, nobody out and didn't score. Uh, you know, we had the base running situation with Lonnie Smith, Lonnie Smith, yeah. where he got deked at second base and didn't pick up the ball. Had he picked up the ball, he would have scored. Uh, we would have won game six. So, you know it's often you know people talk all the time about oh you guys only won one world series and was that disappointing but you know we're sure it's disappointing you want to win more but when you really look at the one that we won versus the one that we lost it really boils down to like one or two plays that if something if this thing had gone our way the series would have been different uh whereas when we won those things went our way and and uh, it really does get down to that minuscule of a difference when you get into those series. And then that series was no different. Both teams, uh, you know, certainly had their opportunities, had missed opportunities. Uh, but it was a, a really a, a, a tremendous series still, you know, by many accounts, one of the top five, five world series of all time. And Absolutely. I can tell you when it was over, yeah, I was emotionally drained. I mean, it took me, it took me a good week to 10 days to where, that off season, I didn't feel like I was exhausted. Like I had finally kind of caught up on sleep and didn't feel tired. And so it was, uh, it was, you know, between the end of the season and the season coming down to the last day of the year for us to win our division, to get into the postseason. Because remember back then, no wild card, you got to win your division to get in. Uh, So, you know, the, the emotion of that in September where every single night it was like a playoff game because it was a one-game difference for so long. Uh, you take the emotions of that, and then you couple it with, you know, going through an NLCS that was very tight, going into a World Series that
0: was very tight. Yeah, by the end of it, we were exhausted. Right, and the Pirates were, <laughs> the Pirates were a great team themselves. You know, they just ran into you guys, you know? Yeah, they did. I
1: mean, you know, we, we went back to Pittsburgh down three games to two, and then you know, Steve Avery at 21 years old goes into Pittsburgh and pitches a gem of a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Smolty in game seven was lights out. So, I mean, you know, that's the kind of thing it took. Uh, uh, that's the kind of effort it took for us to be able to win that series. You know, it basically boiled down to uh, two incredible pitching performances on the road uh, by two really young guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it shows you, shows you how impressive it was.
0: Um, Tom, how frustrated is it to hear people say that about the Braves winning one world title, but the Braves won 14 straight division titles. That's something that has not been matched. So how frustrating is it that people only see that instead of the consistency of excellence that the Braves had?
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's frustrating, but it's to be expected. I mean, look, when you have a team like we had that had the run of success that we had, mm-hmm. you would naturally figure you'd win one, than more, one more than one world series. But You know, like I said, unfortunately, it didn't happen, and, and, you know, not necessarily through any fault of our own. I mean, I think if we look back at our World Series, there's probably one that we think we let get off the hook, and that was 96 against the Yankees. To go into New York, win two games on the road, and then come home and not win another one, um, that was disappointing. But, again, same scenario, right? Game three, I pitched that game. We had bases loaded, nobody out one inning and and didn't score. We ended up losing three to two. Mm -hmm. Um, There was – I think it was game
0: four. We
1: had a uh, pretty big lead.
0: Yeah, six nothing, I believe,
1: right? High ball down the right field line that I think David Justice and Lemke went after, and the umpire got in the way, and the ball fell in, and next thing you know, the, the Yankees scored five runs or whatever, got back in that game, uh, and then the next game, Smoltz and Andy Pettit, who, been pitched a gem. Uh, Paul O'Neill was playing right field on on a on a badly injured hamstring. And I remember it was a one-nothing game late. Louis Polonia comes up to pinch it for us with a runner on, hits a ball in the right field gap that easily would have scored the guy. And somehow, some way, Paul O'Neill found a way to run after that thing and shag it. And, and, you know, it's like if any of those things go our way, it could have been a different series. But uh, And I think that was the case in, in every other one that we lost too. But having said all that, sure, you're disappointed. But at the same time, I wouldn't trade winning 14 straight division titles for one more World Series because, again, the 14 straight division titles shows you consistency. It's a consistency that's never going to be matched ever again. I think the only the only team that has a chance of doing it in professional sports is the Patriots, um, which happens mm-hmm. to be my team. But um, <laughs> I don't know if they're going to get there. I mean, there's no way a, any team in baseball is going to match that. Uh, you know, in today's game and in, in the economics of today's game, there's there's no way you'd be able to keep a team together like some of the teams that we had for as long as we did to be able to do something like that. So uh, I'm extremely proud of, of the fact, uh, uh, the consistency and, and the going out there every year and winning your division and having a chance year in and year out to win a World Series. That's hard to do.
0: Yeah, and there is a team that could be a threat. Los Angeles Dodgers, seven straight NLS titles, and they have... It's amazing. They have young superstars and then there's Wondekins in the minor league system. I mean, they could have a run that, I mean, what do you think of them? And and do you see a lot of your Braves in them and how they're doing? I see some similarities in terms
1: of how they built it. You know, they certainly certainly have that um, core of guys in their starting rotation. Uh, You know, you have your veteran guy like Kershaw and then you have, Uh, you know, the younger guys that they've brought in that, you know, conceivably those younger guys are going to be there for a while. They've done a really good job uh, of drafting guys, developing guys, getting them to the big leagues. They're, they're a big part of their nucleus now, but at the same time, like you say, they still have a pretty good stockpile of guys coming through their minor leagues that they're plugging in behind. And, And that's very much the formula we had in Atlanta. We always had strong pitching. We had a strong nucleus and we had a really strong farm system that was feeding our team, every single year. So yeah, I mean, look, you look at a team like the Dodgers, uh, the the program is the same. The economics are a heck of a lot different than how we did it. No question about that. But, you know, they're they're a market that I guess maybe would have a chance to keep uh, teams like that together, given the fact that they can have a a $300 million payroll.
0: They got money to burn.
1: (laughs) It makes it a little bit easier, but still, if you had to ask me here and now that they're halfway there, would I bet against them making it to 14 straight years? Yes, I probably would.
0: Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I know you're hoping. <laughs> you're hoping. hoping. I just know how hard it is to
1: do. And it's, like I said, it's so hard to not only keep your team together mm-hmm. uh, like that, but it's also hard on any given year uh, not to have a team maybe that gets decimated a little bit by injuries. I mean, that's something that, uh, during our run for the most part we avoided I think there was one year 1999 I think it was that we got to the World Series and got swept by the Yankees I mean that was one year where I think we were kind of looking at each other like how did we get here because that was the year I think that that Javi blew out his knee he went down Galarraga had a relapse of cancer so he was down mm-hmm. smolty's elbow was hanging mm-hmm. uh we had a couple other guys it was like you know that was really the one year where we were kind of decimated by injuries. And, and I think we knew that, too. Every single year you go into spring training, and, yeah, you're the favorites uh, because of what we had. But you take one key guy and he gets hurt, uh, and all of a sudden the dynamic of your team changes a little bit. And, and fortunately, we didn't, ha- we didn't have to deal with that too, too much.
0: That's right, and I remember that 99 NLCS with the Mets. I mean, that game six was exhilarating, and I, I grew up a Met fan, you know, so I'm just... You know,
1: I was, <laughs> the Mets, my five years in New York were great, so I got no problem with that.
0: Yes, yes, indeed, wow, and uh, and, and Tom, now, you're um, the union representative for the Atlanta Braves um, throughout the 90s and everything, so I... Uh, and you took that on as at a pretty young age. You took that on, you know. So, you know, talk about that major responsibility of of representing your team like that. And then, of course, it it you know you really went into overtime when you had to deal with the strike and then lockout ninety four into ninety
1: five. Yeah, so I went I went into it with um, really simple uh, for a simple reason. Um, I was on the Braves in the big leagues. 1990 when we got locked out of spring training um and I hated that experience of not knowing what was going on uh, just have to sit home and wait for a phone call from your player rep to tell you what's going on uh I didn't like that so f- from that I decided okay well our player rep doesn't want to do it anymore I'm going to do it I want to you know because if something goes on I want to know what's going on There was a lot of things that went into the players uh, to the collective bargaining agreement that affected me as a player that I I didn't know. I didn't know how it worked. And I thought, well, this is kind of foolish that, you know, this thing kind of drives my career and I don't know anything about it. So I got into it for those reasons, not getting into it, thinking, Hey, we're going to have a strike. And, and isn't that going to be a lot of fun if I can be a part of that? No, there was was never, Mm -hmm. uh, never my intention. It just, I wanted to know what was going on. I wanted to be a part of what was going on. So you know, when the strike happened, it was just the kind of thing that I think over time, um, it just kind of became evident that myself and David Cohn had a pretty good grasp of what was going on, a uh, pretty good grasp of what the issues were on both sides. Uh, so, when it came time for, you know, the press interviews and the press conferences and things of that nature, it just kept got to be where David and I were answering more and more questions. and And, you know, over time, um, you know, he and I had eventually got elected as the league reps. Uh, mm-hmm. so we were kind of the spokesman and we were kind of the guys that were out, out there doing all the interviews and, you know, in, in hindsight, I guess, you know, people have asked me, what would I do differently? You know, I guess the one thing I would do differently is I probably would not be so accessible. I mean, I didn't turn down an interview for the most part. Um, <laughs> and I didn't because I felt like, well, if I can just get five minutes of somebody's time, I'll change their mind uh, there was no mind changing. People had their minds made up. You were either with the owners or you were with the players. And there was very, very little changing people's minds based on the issues. So I think over time, the more people were on the owner's side, the more they saw me on TV, saw me doing interviews, they just associated me as the guy that that orchestrated the strike. Um, and you know, that wasn't the case. I was just the guy that was, you know, out there talking about it. But, um, You know, I think for people who know me, that's just my nature. If I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. Um, I had a responsibility to be informed, to be in the know, to be responsible to not only my team, but as a league rep, to be responsible to all the guys in the National League and beyond. So, um, you know, that was part of the issue too was in, in those days, you know, probably not as easy to reach everybody like it is today. Uh, so getting on TV and doing an interview was another way to get a message out, out to the masses, uh, into our players. So, um, you know, you had to use the media at that time too, as well, to get your message out to players. So, you know, all those things just kind of, um, were thrown into the mix and put me on TV more. And I think because of that, people just got tired of seeing me and, 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 you know, got more and more angry with me, but I'll tell you, it was, uh, unbelievably, uh, wonderful learning experience um you know it's a it was a business class that you could never get in college mm-hmm. uh, to be a part of those meetings uh to go to the White House and sit down with President Clinton and and have a conversation about all this in the in in the White House I mean those are experiences that you'll never be able to do again so uh that was the that was the positive side of it it was a tremendous learning experience but at the end of the day obviously it was awful for baseball. But Again, the silver lining of that strike was we've had labor peace ever since then. So um, you know, and, and, and I think in large part because of because of that strike and everybody understanding the damage that it did to the game.
0: Wow, but there there wasn't peace this year though, as you know, with uh with trying to determine, of course, COVID nineteen pandemic, uh put a halt to spring training and everything. And and it's a shame because you know, like prorated salaries and and amount of games, everything like that. Do you think this tension, even though the season will happen, do you think this tension could linger past the season? Um, I hope not, but I think so.
1: Um, You know, I don't, I I don't know enough about um, the issues that, that the both sides are arguing about today. Like it it was easy in our day. In 1994, the owners wanted a salary cap. We weren't, there was no way in hell we were going to agree to a salary cap. Mm-hmm. So that's essentially an easy fight. You want this, you, we want that, there's your fight. In today's game, I'm not so sure what they're fighting over, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. I know there's a lot of smaller issues, uh, but it's not that one huge economic issue uh, that we fought over that was easier to kind of identify. Um, now, having said that, I do think there's a little bit more of an acrimonious relationship between the Players Association and the owners. Um, look at, there's always a level of distrust, uh, on the player side when the, when the owners start talking about revenue and what re- what revenue really is and what constitutes revenue, what makes up revenue. Um, players are always going to be, um, un, um, have a hard time trusting the owners when they hear those numbers. And, and conversely, the owners aren't going to open their books, nor should they. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's always going to be a part of that dynamic. Now, Again, um, should does there necessarily have to be a huge level of trust between the two sides when it comes to the economics of the game for them to sit down and figure something out? No, I don't think so. I mean, uh, it's, it's not to say that after the strike in 1994 that all of a sudden we both sides trusted each other and everything was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's still a level of distrust, but I think the greater good of the game uh, became a much bigger part of discussions and a much bigger part of negotiations. Uh, and, and it made some of those things maybe that you were willing to fight about seem a, little, seem a little less important. So I'm hopeful that even though there seemed to be a whole lot more acrimony uh, than there should have been uh, regarding this restart, I'm hoping it's not going to carry over into the next collective bargaining agreement. But you know, I, I, would, I would be foolish if I were to sit here and say there's no way. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, I'm just hoping that now that everybody has sat, sat down, figured out how they're going to proceed with this new season, um, sees hopefully how good it was for the country to get baseball back, uh, I hope all those things weigh on everybody when it comes to the next collective bargaining agreement. Because I can tell you, as I've told so many people in interviews, after the strike in 94, our next CBA was on the heels of 9-11. And we were going down the road of another bad situation. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think at the end of the day, what we did to the game after the strike, what had happened to the country after 9-11, at the end of the day, that was the, 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 that was the final straw in everybody's minds that, hey, we can't do this again. And, mm-hmm. and it precipitated us sitting down. And actually getting something done, and, and we've had labor peace ever since. So I'm hopeful that this situation that the country is in right now, that baseball sees what a good thing it is to be back. Yes. And that has some impact on next year's negotiations.
0: That is a great point. It's it's about looking at humanity and society before uh, greed and, and pride, you know, at the end of the day.
1: No, for sure. Look, you're always going to have – look, it's – I know – and i don't like to, i don't want to sound derogatory but i know the average fan is never going to understand when players and owners of any sport are arguing over millions of dollars i get that i understand that but it's always going to be a part of it you know every uh, on the athlete side they have a short window of making money and they're always trying to protect that window as best they can on the owner's side, look, they're making they're making big investments and taking big risks, and you know, look, they didn't they didn't become wealthy people by being dumb with their money, so uh, they're trying to be smart on their side as well, and and it just that never plays well publicly because people don't want to hear millionaires and billionaires quabbling over money. It's inevitably always going to be a part of the a part of the conversation, mm-hmm. uh, but I hope next year they do a little bit better job of keeping that part of the conversation to themselves and out of the newspapers. Cause that's what turns people off.
0: Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And uh, talking here with the great Tom Glavin baseball hall of famer, uh, one of the great pitchers to ever pitch in major league baseball. And, and Tom now, like now with your career and how you were great for so long, you were part of a staff with John Smoltz hall of famer with greg maddox hall of famer of course yourself hall of famer steve avery good pitcher in his in his day in his prime now it's interesting you won you won the only world series in 1995 that collective of braves team that braves collective and you won the mvp of the world series now how gratifying was it to stand out within a staff of two future Hall of Famers and to let it be known that you're up there as well. And talk about how the relationship collectively between you guys, was it like a frenemy type of thing? Was it like, a, you know, like, like you know, that type of vibe of, of having, pushing each other, being competitive, but also having a wonderful respect for each other personally.
1: Look, we were we were so blessed to be teammates for as long as we were and and you know it's one of those things that I look back on and and you know you talk about uh just right place right time and a blessing i mean i can promise you uh john and greg and i are are were still are the best of friends i mean yes. there was there was never any jealousy or acrimony or any of that stuff between any one of us um i think we knew what we meant collectively um we knew that what the expectations of our team were on a given year, a lot of that had to do with what the three of us did. Um, So collectively, we knew that. Individually, we didn't want to be the weak link in the chain. So if if one of us had a bad year, uh, and that cost the team not to to do what we wanted the team to do, we didn't want to be that guy. Um, Now, having said that, it wasn't like, oh, you know, Greg's winning 20, 20 games this year. I wish I won 22 or... You know, John won a Cy Young Award. I wish I did. I mean, look, we're always always going out there striving to be that guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, any given year, we, we were going to be that guy. But collectively, we knew what we each brought to the table. We knew how important each of us was. Uh, and we just, we just drove each other, you know? I mean, it, there used to be – we had a joke on there for a while. It's like, okay, well, who's going to be the opening day starter this year? And it's like, well, <laughs> who won the Young Award last year? And and that's kind of really what it boiled down to because we had a run there where, you know, Greg won a few, I, John won one, I won and one. It was, I mean, it was, you know, it was always somebody on our team. So, um, you know, we knew that was a part of the equation and we loved it. We respected it. Um, I I loved pitching with those guys because it just made things easier. You know, there's a lot of pressure that goes on along with being the number one starter on a team. Uh, when you've got three number one guys you don't have that pressure. You know, you go out there and, and if, if I had a bad game tonight, then I know John or Greg's going to come behind me and pick me up and we're going to get and get things back on track. I mean, that was so instrumental to our success over all those years is we had very few losing streaks of more than two games. And, and, and it was for that reason. You know, every night you're running a guy out there that's got a chance to go out there and, and, and pitch a shout-out for you and win a game. So we fed off of that. We drove each other to work hard uh, like I say, not, not wanting to be the weak link, um, made us all work hard and make sure we took care of business. Uh, we had fun competition wise when it came to hitting. Um, you know, we always had some stuff going on there, but at the same time, what it did was it made us all work at it. We were all great bunters. We could all swing the bat. We could all help ourselves offensively. And that was because we had some fun with it. We had some friendly vets and and that kind of like I said, kind of motivated us to work at it. So it was really a situation where we fed off of one, one another. Uh, you know, if, if John went out and threw a shutout, two-hit shutout last night, I'm going to go out tonight and throw, try and throw a one-hit shutout. Not going to happen all the time, but we had that motivation from one, from one another. And, and, you know, it really kept us from getting complacent. And then, you know, knowing these guys as well as I did, you know, we played golf all the time on the road. We would always talk about pitching. We would talk about who we were getting ready to play or, or things of that nature. So that's all knowledge that we're gaining. And, you know, again, what a blessing to know that I had a really good pitching coach in Leo. But if I was struggling with something or I was not feeling right about something, man, how good was it to be able to go to John and Greg and say, hey, listen, watch me this inning and tell me if you see this. I feel like I'm doing this or I'm not doing that. Watch this inning and see if you see that. And then they come back in the dugout and have that instant feedback of, hey, yeah, you know what? You're right. I see you doing that. Or, hey, no, I don't see you doing that. Man, how easy is it now for me to either check that out of my mind or put that back into my brain and say, yes, that's it. I got to keep working on that. And, and to have those guys uh, for us to know each other as well as we did, it, it was just such a blessing.
0: And I enjoyed that interview, Fox Sports, uh, the interview you conducted when John was uh, inducted into the hall, and, and you and Greg, that was awesome. And I got a question. I know you're bummed that John retired a year later. Imagine and if all three of you guys were together.
1: <laughs> that would have been fun. I'll tell you what, you know, there's, when you go in the Hall of Fame, um, you know, you wonder, well, would, you, would it be more fun to go in by yourself or, or whatever, and, and I can tell you, for me, the answer to that is no. Um, having had the opportunity not only to go in the Hall of Fame, but go into the Hall of Fame with a longtime teammate, one of my best friends, and my manager who meant me Cox, yes. game of baseball than anybody, man, that was so so much fun to be able to do that. And and again, when you're when you're around guys like that, and you're inevitably uh, interlinked with one another, to then ultimately have that opportunity to be enshrined in baseball immortality together with those guys man that was so cool and, and we did we gave Smoltz a little bit of crap for playing one more year uh, <laughs> and not being up there with us but uh inevitably it was it was still fun coming back that next year uh our first year back after being inducted and watched john go in so that was pretty cool
0: and it was deep too. a rival in joe Torre as well the yankees manager during yeah. those series yeah
1: <laughs> we had a good class but i mean my goodness you're talking about the hall of fame so pretty much every class that goes in is a pretty good class
0: Mm-hmm. that's for sure wow so so tom now you ended up going to the rival new york mets because they gave you they guaranteed that fourth year i believe that was the reason so but how was it to be across on the mound against your former teammates and everything and also too i want to talk with you about that 2006 mets team as well how good they were and and how close they were winning a world series i think if they if they got by the cardinals yeah what it did
1: so going to new york was obviously a, a shock shock to me shock to everybody uh, certainly a shock to some degree to the baseball world but mm-hmm. um you know it was one of those things that i was not planning on um you know to make a long story short it essentially uh boiled down to you know i asked the braves for a three-year contract for a certain amount of money um they told me they weren't gonna going to do it. Uh they told me I wasn't going to get it as a free agent. Uh when I went out on the on the market as a free agent day 1, I had a 3-year deal for more money than the Braves were offering me. Mm-hmm. Um I went back to the Braves and I said, "Listen, I'm not asking you to match what those other teams are are offering me. I want you to give me what I asked you to give me 2 months ago. I'm not asking you to pay me more. I'm not asking you to match what the Mets or the Phillies have given me. I just want what I asked for before." And they still weren't willing to do it. So at that stage of the game, Uh, it was time to move on. And then it became a discussion between the Mets and the Phillies. And, uh, you know, the Mets obviously stepped up. They guaranteed that fourth year. Uh, And it was important for me to get that fourth year because I wanted to win 300 games. And I knew realistically, I wasn't going to do it in three years. So I didn't want to be looking for another team uh, to latch onto for that one more year to try and win my 300th game. Uh, So that fourth year was extremely important. And then they attacked on a fifth year option. So uh, they even sweetened the deal even more, but, um, you know, it was just the kind of thing where, like I said, I, I was not expecting that. I fully expected to go back to Atlanta. Uh, it didn't work out. And, and look, my experience in New York was great. Uh, I made a lot of good friends up there, guys that I'm still friends with to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, I've said it and I believe it that I think every player should spend at least one year in New York and play up there and see what it's like, because it's different. Uh, it's different from a media standpoint. It's different when your team is winning um I mean it, it's a lot of it is just not like anything you would uh, experience in any other city except except for maybe a you know a Boston or, or Detroit or something like that or Los Angeles so mm-hmm. um it really was a good experience it was tough um you know being away from Atlanta uh, making that change after so many years was tough emotionally um emotionally it was tough because of what it was doing to my family I mean I essentially was in New York um, and either spring training in New York, nine months out of the year. So I was gone, uh, nine months out of the year. My wife was essentially a single mom, uh, during that time. I mean, they would come visit me on, on weekends when I was in, in New York or maybe in a Florida, uh, close to Atlanta, they would come up for the summer, but, um, it was hard. I mean, thank God I had a, a super strong wife. Uh, and you know, they're to this day, I don't even ask how she did half the things that she did. It's almost like I don't want to know. I don't want to know how you did it, but I know she did it. And wow. she kept things together here, so it made it easy for me to, to focus on what I was doing baseball-wise. And, and like I said, you know, New York was – it was fun. I mean, I was always told that, yeah, the Yankees get a lot of attention, but it's really a National League town, and this fam- this town really loves the Mets, and, and you'll see if, you know, you guys win, and sure enough, in '6. When we when we had a good year and went to the playoffs, yes. that city was electric, and and I saw what people were talking about, who said that, you know, it was a Mets town and a National League town, and uh, you know, that really was a an electric year, similar to the '91 year in in Atlanta. Um, again, the only only bad part was it didn't go the way we wanted to at the end. I was convinced uh, when Andy Chavez robbed that home run. Yes okay, this is it. This is, that's our, that's the sign we're winning this thing. But, uh, unfortunately it didn't go that way.
0: Wow, that's right. And, and then I remember, uh, when Yadier hit the home run to win that game, the game winning home run, I was looking like Chavez, make another catch, make another, <laughs> but it was way high <laughs> over his head.
1: I know, I know it was unfortunate. And then, you know, we were convinced to, you know, that inning with, with our big, with our big boppers coming up there and that, that yeah. next inning that we were going to get Something done, but you know, unfortunately, uh, I believe it was Adam Adam Wainwright, had, a, Wainwright. Mm-hmm. had other ideas, so it didn't go our way.
0: Yeah, and 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 I don't like how people criticize Carlos Beltran, who will be in the Hall of Fame uh, in the near future for sure. How they say that that he should have swung after the second curveball. I think the first one was his, but that second one was filthy. You know,
1: look, it's easy to sit. You know, when you're watching on TV. Mm-hmm. Everything looks slow. I mean, everything looks like, oh, my God, how can you not hit that? When you're in the batter's box and you're trying to think along with what a guy's trying to do against you, uh, it's a little bit harder because with a guy like him, look, you, he threw hard. He had a really good curveball. Really hard to sit in the batter's box against a guy like that and not pick a pitch.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because they're both so good, you can't, you can't sit fastball and hit curveball. You can't sit curveball and hit fastball. You might follow it off and live for another one, but you're not going to drive that pitch in that situation. So you've got to guess a little bit, and, and, and you've got to guess right. And I think in that case, Carlos didn't guess right. Uh, and, and, again, when you, when you take a curveball that on TV doesn't, you know, look li- as impressive as it is and, you know, splits the heart of the plate, naturally everybody's like, oh, my God, what are you doing? How do you not swing at that? Well, when you're looking for a 95-mile-an-hour fastball and a guy snapped off one of those, awful hard to pull the trigger on that.
0: You retired at Atlanta Brave, which, you know, comes full circle that you retired with the, the team that that you that you started with and everything. Um, but give your advice to people like in any field about longevity and consistency. Twenty two seasons in the bigs. You will, you exemplify that.
1: It, it, you got to take care of yourself. Uh, you got to take care of yourself physically. You got to take care of yourself mentally um look I'm I wouldn't sit here and tell you that I was the hardest working guy in baseball but I will tell you that I was probably one of the most regimented guys in baseball Mm -hmm. I had my plan and I stuck to my plan I didn't I wasn't one of these guys that wavered that oh you know what I'm pitching really well things are going great I can be lazy uh because I'm good and whatever and then the next thing you know things go bad and then you're trying to play catch up or conversely you know, maybe a little bit of a lazy guy. and all of a sudden things aren't going good. Well, now I want to work hard. Well, no, now you, the cat's been out of the bag. Now it's hard to get them back in. So, you know, I was extremely consistent with what I was doing in the weight room between starts in terms of my preparation. I was extremely consistent with my bullpens, with my uh, later in my career, watching video and studying hitters and doing all those things. So uh, I was very, very regimented. I was very, very prepared. Um, and then I think that, you know, it boils down to a couple of things, you know, number one, you can't be afraid of failure because things are going to go wrong and Mm -hmm. and you, you, you have to be prepared for things to go wrong. And when they do, you got to learn from it. You don't only learn from good experiences. You learn a lot from bad experiences. You know, my, my first year in the big leagues, I lost 17 games. It taught me a lot about myself mentally. It told me what I was capable of dealing with. It told me how I was capable of, of dealing with bad starts and bad games and bouncing back. And and keep trudging along and keep learning and keep moving. And uh, so you have to, you have to not be afraid of failure and not so much embrace it, but at least embrace the learning aspect of when things don't go well. Cause there's something to learn. Uh, like I said, it's not only when you do great or do well that you learn things, learn from your failures, learn from your successes. Um, but then also, um, you know, don't, I was never a guy that was satisfied or listen to what people thought I could be as a pitcher. You know, if, if somebody had a, had a report on me uh, before a season that's saying, oh, Glavin's going to do this, this, or this, or he's going to have this kind of year, I never listened to that. I always challenged myself to be as good as I thought I could be. Uh, I wanted to be the best that I thought I could be, not not the version of somebody else thinking I could be. What does that mean exactly? Well, that means, you again, you challenge yourself. You know what? Um, if I can throw my, my fastball in the outside corner to a righty, can I throw it on the inside corner to a righty? Can I get it in on a lefty? Can I get it away to a lefty? You know, early in my career when I developed my changeup and that became my signature pitch in 1991, I was always told, "Oh, wow, you can't throw changeups to lefties. And, and, and I didn't for a long time. And, and I struggled against lefties. And I finally got to the point where I was like, wait a minute. It's my best pitch. Why can't I throw it to lefties? So I started throwing it to lefties. And then I started throwing it inside to righties. And then I started working on my breaking ball. So, I mean, my point is, you know, you're going you're gonna to develop kind of a pattern as to what you're good at. Mm. Don't be afraid to try to expand on that. Challenge yourself to see if you can be even better on certain things or in certain areas. Don't always focus, again, when you're practicing, don't focus always on what you're good at. Yes. Focus on the things that you're not good at. It's uncomfortable, but you got to work on them. You're never going to get any better at the things that you're deficient in if you never work at it. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I think you're not a very well-rounded person if you're only willing to work on the things that you know, you're good at challenge yourself, get outside your skin a little bit. Uh, So I guess in a nutshell, yeah. Uh, um, You know, challenge yourself to work on things that you're deficient at and, and challenge yourself to be a better version of yourself, not just a good version of what you know is already good. And, and, you know, like I said, I think that, tur- that did me a world of good throughout my career. I mean, 22 years in baseball, there's a lot of adjustments from, you know, one year to the next or from a five-year period to the next five-year period. The game changes, hitters change, all that stuff. You start to get older. You can't do some of the things you used to do. Okay, how am I going to change? How am I going to combat that? How if I, if I can't throw the ball where I want to as well all the time, what am I going to do to fix that a little bit? Uh, Maybe I pitch inside a little bit more. Maybe I throw my curveball a little bit more. So again, don't be afraid of of your deficiencies. Challenge yourself to always get better uh, and just be the best version of you that you think you can be, not what somebody else tells you they think you
0: can be. No, that's deep. And that's, and I'm a professional musician myself. So that's, that's about practice, which you talk about. I want to sound horrible. I want to struggle. That's how I get better, you know, and that, and that's the thing. And, and for everything you do, you know, I, I want to ask you like some current event questions real quick. Um, now 300 wins. Do you see another pitcher winning 300 games again? I
1: do not uh, just simply from the standpoint, I don't see guys playing long enough. Um, you, you've got to play 20 years. Uh, and the way guys uh, the way guys throw the baseball today uh, with the the velocity and the force uh, that they throw every pitch with, I just don't see a guy staying long, uh, healthy for 20 years in today's game. That's not to say that there aren't guys that have the talent to do it. Uh, there are plenty of guys that have the talent to do it. I don't think anybody's going to stay healthy long enough to do it.
0: And it's deep, Tom, because you had the flamethrowers like the Nolan Ryans and everything and, you know, that that were able to last a long time, you know, Randy Johnson, et cetera. But why is it that that longevity isn't evident in today's picture? But I, I don't understand. And the science is is more, is more, the technology and the science is more evolved now. That's weird.
1: I, and I, I think it's you're right, because I think guys, guys, have the ability to take way better care of themselves today, both nutritionally and physically. Look, when I played, when I first got to the big leagues, I got a tour of the clubhouse. And when they showed me the weight room, the next thing they said was now stay out of it. You know, uh-huh. for so long, it was pitchers stay out of the weight room. Um, so that's evolved. So you, you, you have a much better of an opportunity to take care of yourself Physically, Um, You have a better opportunity to stay on top of injuries with all the advances in medicine and, and, you know, the devices in the locker rooms the training rooms to help guys get over injuries or stiffnesses or things of that nature. So you're right. Everything is lining up that guys should be able to play longer. But I think the big difference, you talk about a guy like Randy, you talk about a guy like Nolan. Yes, those guys threw hard, Mm -hmm. but they didn't throw with max effort on every single pitch. You watched guys in today's game and it's maxed effort on every single pitch. Yeah. And I think I don't think anybody's body is equipped to handle 20 plus years of max effort. I just don't. Either your elbow's going to go, your shoulder's going to go, your back's going to go, something's going to go. And, and I think when you look at guys who are able to play that long, whether they were flamethrowers or guys like myself and Greg Maddox, I think the similarities are pretty simple mechanics mm-hmm. um pretty repeatable mechanics and there's not a a, a max effort on every pitch you know I, I learned when i became successful i learned how to pitch at 95% effort level mm. and be four or five times a game i'd let one fly at 100% but aside from that i was i was kind of keeping things dialed down to to 95% effort effort level because i knew I could repeat those mechanics. I knew I could throw the ball where I wanted to at that effort level. And then, like I said, four or five times a game, you want to buzz a guy inside, get a guy off of the plate, all right, boom, here you go. Here's everything I got. But that was only four or five times a game. Today, it's <laughs> seemingly every pitch it looks like.
0: Yeah. Wow. That, that's deep. And, and, Tom, it's funny. Now we have openers. Uh-huh. Now, like, what is your take on that? Now, like, where, like, it's 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 crazy. Now you have seven pitchers in one game and all relievers. I will give some teams that do that. I will give them credit uh, for
1: thinking outside the box and trying to be find a way to be successful. But ultimately, when you have an opener, it just means you don't have somebody that's good enough to be a starter. Uh, I can promise you, if you had somebody in your system that was good enough to start and go out there and, and pitch six or seven innings in a game, that guy would be out there. Not every organization has that. Not every team has that, whether that's they just don't have the guys in their system or they have somebody at the big league level that got hurt, um, whatever the case may be. You know, I I look at a team like uh, Tampa Bay, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, Tampa Bay's done a really good job of implementing the opener uh, and making it a successful formula for them. But I promise you, given that, even a team like that who's had some success with the opener, if they had somebody that they – trusted to go out there and be a starter they wouldn't have an opener Mm. so i think a lot of it out is 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 out of necessity unfortunately but i will give teams credit for thinking outside the box and rather than just run a guy out there who they know is not qualified to do it or not ready to do it and go out there and get their brains beat in they're trying to find a way to still win that game uh and, and and again i think that's that's great that they're thinking that way but again i promise you. If they had another guy that they felt could fill that role as a starter, they would have a starter.
0: Well, and, and it's funny. I've always thought this throughout my time of watching baseball, the years I watch baseball, about how pitchers, like you were four four-time silver slugger. You know, you're a very good hitting pitcher. You bat, you bat around 190, which is very good in your career. And, and, and that's the thing. Like, Tom, why is it that pitchers don't take hitting seriously, especially where it can help their cause? Um. I,
1: I think it's. Here's what I think. All right, we're starting to be uh, in the era of of guys that grew up being pitchers only. Uh, so what I mean by that, when I when I played, when I wasn't pitching, I played center field. I played first base. Um, in my lineup, I was hitting third. I was hitting fourth. Um, and and throughout my career, guys in the rotation with me were the same way. I can I can think of maybe one guy that I played with. Um, early in my career anyway, that when he wasn't pitching, he was, he was playing another position, but he was probably hitting eighth or ninth in his lineup. Mm-hmm. Everybody mm-hmm. else, I mean, Smoltz, Avery, Maddox, you name it, those guys were playing another position, they were hitting third or fourth in their lineup. Yeah. And so, number one, they're good athletes. Number two, you're, you're hitting more, you're practicing more, you're doing all that stuff. Whereas these guys today, and I had to fight it with my son, these guys today are so enamored with being on the best possible travel team that they can be on that they're willing to put themselves on these teams as pitchers only. So that means they show up, they pitch, and then that's it. They never get in the batter's box. They never hit. They never play another position. They never see the game from that side. They only see the game from the pitching side. So you know how much you can learn about pitching by standing in a batter's box? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just a part of the part of reality that these kids aren't going through. So I think it, it's – when when they're growing up as pitchers only, they're never hitting. They essentially go through the minor leagues hitting very little. It's probably unfair to expect that when they get to the big leagues, now all of a sudden they're going to know how to hit. Now, I don't know that that gives them excuse to not be able to bunt. You know, I mean, I <laughs> – like, listen, whether I get any hits or not, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be able to lay down a bunt, you know, yeah. I'm going to give my manager enough reasons to take me out of a game because of how I'm pitching. I'll be damned if I'm going to take, have him take me out of a game late in the game because I can't lay down a bunt. Yep. So that's happening. So, you know, that's another, that's another reason why you're going to see it awful hard for guys to win 300 games nowadays because not only are they not allowed to pitch deep into the games, but you take a simple situation like that where, you know, a guy gets taken out of a game because he can't lay down a bunt or, or something like that. Well, there's a lost opportunity. To stay in the game for another inning or two and maybe win a game, um mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I know with all this talk of um you know universal d h and what have you, yeah, as much as I've been against it, uh as bad as hitters, as bad as pitchers are hitting nowadays, I'm starting to lean more and more towards watching the d h because i'm 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 <laughs> I'm really yeah. getting to watching these- pet- pitchers get in the batter's box and they have no chance.
0: yeah, it looks like it looks like past the season they may. Continue it for sure. Do you think the season will be halted again? Can everyone stay safe with what's going on with the pandemic? I would
1: be hard pressed to believe that it's gonna that it's gonna be halted unless you just have a tremendous outbreak of players getting getting sick, and -hmm. then it compromises what's going on on the field. You know, look, I'm not I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. You know, this is my opinion. Um, I think that what we went through initially with this disease and we locked the country down and we shut everything down, mm-hmm. I don't see us doing that again. I don't. I think that, uh, you know, as much as we want to keep everybody safe, um, you know, I, I think, too, there's, there's an argument to be had on the other side that, you know, people, people are, are, as much as they're, uh, we're worried about people getting sick, you're equally worried about people who are losing everything. Uh, And and they want to go back to work and they need to go back to work. And, 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 you know, the normalcy we spoke of earlier, I think this country is starving for some normalcy. Now that doesn't mean we can't take precautions and and clearly all the professional sports are doing it. We as individuals have responsibilities to protect the people around us who are, that doesn't mean that I have to be mandated or you have to be mandated or my neighbor has to be mandated to not leave the house. I think you need to leave some responsibility up to people to be smart and to deal with this thing in a smart way. Now we're all always going to point fingers at the millennials, but listen, if we were millennials, if we were 20, 25 years old, we'd probably be doing the same thing. (laughs) It's just the way that it is. I think it's part, we just need to allow people to be smart about it, identify people in our lives that are vulnerable Make sure we're taking necessary precautions, but because of all that, I guess in a nutshell, I just don't see a scenario uh where we're gonna shut everything down again. I really don't unless, like i said uh the only I guess the only scenario I could see is if you just have major breakouts amongst a lot of teams to where the integrity of the product and the field starts to get compromised, that might do it, but i don't I don't think. The overall, what's going on in the country, and do we have a hot spot here or a hot spot there? Uh, I, I just don't see us shutting everything down like we did initially.
0: Well, wow, and 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 with the season coming up, sixty-game season. I mean, it takes teams seventy-five to eighty games to ramp it up to finally get into a groove, into a rhythm. But the Braves are. I mean. They're incredible. Like the young, we talked about the Dodgers earlier, the Braves had that young talent, you know, and everything. I mean, can they, uh, do you think they can be able in a 60 game season to win it all? And, and, and also will it really ruin the championship with it being an asterisk? I mean, like how tough that could be. they will be
1: an asterisk simply because it's, it's that kind of year. I mean, it's a year that we've, nobody's ever seen. Nobody's ever, Nobody's ever dealt with, so it's gonna be. There's gonna be an asterisk from the standpoint of, oh yeah, that was the that was the year of the pandemic. They only played sixty games. Will there be an asterisk in my mind for the team that's left standing at the end as the champion? Absolutely not. They're all playing under the same rules. As long as they're playing under the same rules, then have at them, boys. Go get them. Let the last man stand. So whether it's hundred and sixty-two games or sixty games, whatever team is the last team, they. They've earned it under the under the conditions that all teams uh, were trying to earn it under. Now, could you see a scenario where a 60-game champion is not who would have been a 162-game champion? Yes. Look at last year. The Washington Nationals were the World Series champions. In a 60-game schedule, they would not have made the playoffs. That's so, right. yeah, it goes to show you that, yes, you might have some teams rise to the top or, or rise to the occasion in terms of getting in the playoffs, but I still think at the end of the day, you're going to see the teams that you probably most expect being in the playoffs, in the playoffs. You're probably going to see the teams, the favorites that everybody's looking at right now being the last two teams that are standing. Um, so I, I think all of that um, lends itself to, no, your, your champion is going to be a legitimate champion. Um, and and as far as the Braves are concerned, look, I think they're very well built for a short season. I really do. Be, and now I say that I said that before learning today that Cole Hamels has had a setback, uh, still having some shoulder issues there. Uh, that was one of the things that I looked at as being an advantage for the Braves that, hey, Cole came into spring training banged up. He's had all this time to get healthy. You're going to have a Cole, healthy Cole Hamels. Well, now, scratch that from the equation. But having said that, you're, you're not going to see starting pitchers going out there for probably some guys maybe second or third start, other guys a little bit beyond that. To where they really start stretching themselves, mm-hmm. which is going to going to put pressure on bullpens. Uh, the Braves bullpen has been stru- is structured going into this year to be one of the best in the game, so I think yeah. gives them an advantage. So um, knowing that that bullpen that was again arguably one of the strongest facets of their team, now they're in a position where they're going to have even more of an impact, uh, at least early on. I think that puts them in a good position. And, and look, I guess one of the variables is with these young guys, these young electric guys, you know, I don't know how they're going to react to the um, uh, urgency of a 60-game schedule. I don't. Uh, there's a ton of talent there. But you don't know how, guy, how particularly young guys are going to react to the fact that, hey, we've only got 60 games. i got to get into this thing. i got to get going. I, I don't have time to ease my way into a season. Um, so you know that that's a variable that you don't know, but you know it's gonna be interesting because you know y- y- there's a saying in baseball you're not gonna you can't win your division in the first month of the year, but you can lose it mm-hmm. uh, now you're gonna be hearing hearing guys talking about you can't win your division in one week, but you can lose your division in one week uh so you know now uh you get a team that has a bad seven days or a bad ten days, they could very well play themselves right out of that thing, so it puts a lot of pressure. Uh, again, on getting off to a good start and, and, and having some consistency throughout your season because teams aren't going to be able to afford having a, a seven, eight game, ten, or 10 game losing streak. You won't be able to recover.
0: Wow, no, absolutely. And, and Tom, before I let you go, we do a segment with rapid fire questions, you know? And it's funny, <laughs> I, do, I, I do this with different athletes. Like if you're a football player, it'd be no huddle. If you're a basketball player, it'd be fast break. As a baseball player, it's hit and run. Uh, All right. So I'm <laughs> so gonna ask you some quick questions and, and uh, I know you'll give me some, some quick answers for sure. But hey, if you wanna elaborate more, feel free because you're dropping so much knowledge. First question, the current pitcher who reminds you of you?
1: Hmm. Um, that's a good question in today's game, man. Um, gosh, uh, we just had him last year. Uh, Dallas Keuchel.
0: Ah, yes. I love that interview, too. You had with him. Now, most underrated player you've encountered in your career, a player that has not gotten the recognition after he's retired?
1: not gotten a recognition after he's retired. Freddie McGriff. I think Freddie McGriff should be in the Hall of Fame.
0: I agree. I agree. Crime dog. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Now, most bizarre, or in in a a better term, eccentric teammate (laughs) that you've had? Oh,
1: man. Most eccentric. Um, That's a good question. Um, Maybe Mike Piazza. Oh. Okay. Mike, Interesting. Very smart guy. Um very you know, intelligent guy, but yeah, you would you would have some some conversations with Mike from time to time that it was like, all right, where did that come from? But okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's good to know. I never thought he was that type of guy. <laughs> Whoa, that's funny. Well, now, the toughest hitter uh, that you face, the toughest hitter that you to get out for you personally. Specifically speaking, Mike Redmond, uh, backup catcher for the Marlins, could not get
1: him out. Um, I wasn't the only one. I guess I think he had really good numbers against Randy and um, Mike Hampton as well. Uh, but yeah, I could not get him out. But 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 on a more um, more traditional scale, uh, if I had a one-run lead and a runner on second base, I did not want to see Tony Gwynn up at the bat.
0: Oh, Tony Gwynn, God rest his soul. Wow, man, what a hitter! What a hitter! Yes, indeed. Now, music playlists that you would play that would get you pumped up for a start?
1: Um, it have uh, some, definitely have some Guns N' Roses on there. Okay. Um, would have some Collective Soul on there. Okay. Um, and probably you know every, everybody's got to have one or two AC/DC songs in their fired-up list.
0: Uh, what type of soul? Motown, soul or stacks? Motown or stacks? Uh, probably Motown. Okay, nice. I like that. I like that diversity for sure. Now, the film that you watch over and over and over again.
1: Mm, man, there's a couple of those. Um, Field of Dreams would be on that list. Um, gosh, I know there's one other one that I, you know. When you ask me, of course, you can never think of it, but uh, there's at least one other one that yeah, when it's on, I'm watching it. But I'd say Field of Dreams off the yeah. top of my head
0: wow yes indeed yes indeed and wow now which five current pitchers would you put in your rotation top five current i would definitely start with jake degrom um
1: it's probably not fair because i don't know the american league well enough but jake degrom uh probably bellinger would be in there uh mike sirocco would definitely be in there um Let's see. Let me think of some other guys here. Um, uh, again, I know it's a little bit hometown. I just again the hometown thing. I got a I got a soft spot for him because he's a lefty and he's a good kid. Max Freed, love watching him pitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, so That gives me one more, huh? Uh, it's hard to go. hard to not have Scherzer in there. I mean, he's uh, he's as good good a competitor as you're going to see in the game of baseball right now.
0: Okay, World Series champion twenty twenty or the participants in the World Series twenty twenty.
1: All right, I mean, no, I mean, I know the easy answer is the Braves. <laughs> um, so I'll say, uh, I mean, I want to see the Braves there, and I think it's going to be on the American League side. Man, I don't know if the Yankees pitching can stay healthy. They're going to be tough. Um, I'll say, I'm going to say, I want it to be Atlanta and the Yankees. I might be the Dodgers and the Yankees.
0: Okay, okay. Now, Stanley Cup champion, because the NHL restart is happening and they're going right to the playoffs. Who who's going to be the two teams in the Stanley Cup Finals?
1: I'm hoping that my Bruins are going to pick up where they left off because they were man. starting to roll. Yes. Uh, so I'm I'm going to say the Bruins coming out of the East. Um. I know St. Louis was doing I – th- I think it might be St. Louis. I might be a, it might be a rematch. The was playing well. Um, always tough to repeat. So, I think the break has helped those two teams in their quest to get back to the Cup.
0: Wow. And the last question on Hit and Run, the pitcher that you would pitch, that you would love to pitch a Game 7 in a World Series against, dead or
1: alive? Somebody I would love to pitch a Game 7 against, uh, Sandy Koufax. Oh,
0: <sighs> <sighs> That yeah, I, I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna invent a time machine and make that happen. <laughs> I don't know that I would
1: bet on myself in that scenario because he was pretty damn good, but hey, you never know.
0: Ninety five Glavin versus sixty five Koufax. Hey, let's do it. That'd be all right. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> well, and and how's your son Peyton doing? He was drafted in two thousand seventeen. Um, you know, he plays with Auburn. It's a shame that he didn't get to play. I know yeah, because of the pandemic, how's he
1: doing? Again, another one of those blessings a little bit. you know he um tough freshman year, uh, started pitching pretty well his sophomore year, got hurt mm-hmm. uh, um came back last year and was banged up a little bit when he when he came back uh, after winter break and had just been activated the week the weekend that everything got shut down. so uh, that was unfortunate. and yeah, I mean, it's it's unfortunate because, you know these as much as we talk about things that we're dealing with, we're, we're suffering, you know, you look at these high school kids and college kids, they're losing out on experiences that are, they're never going to get again, uh, which is just heartbreaking. And, and, you know, for him, fortunately he's got another year, but um, you know, the the blessing was he came back and, you know, he and I got to spend have spent all this time together uh, working on his mechanics, working on his, on his body, on his body and the physical side of things and, uh, he's actually playing uh, in a summer league in Florida right now and doing really, really well. So um, he's healthy, uh, seems to have benefited from the time we've spent together. So uh, I'm hopeful that if somebody doesn't uh, sign him as a free agent at the end of this summer, that, uh, you know, he goes back to Auburn and, and uh, makes his mark on Auburn baseball uh, next year.
0: That's right. And, and uh, one more thing I want to talk to you about, very powerful that, you, that your youngest son, Kiernan, adopted. Yes. Tell the audience that story. It's really deep, really powerful. It was the kind of
1: thing where, you know, my wife and I uh, blended family. She has one from her first. I have one from my first. We have two together. Uh, and she wanted to have a girl. Um, and um, I couldn't have any more. She couldn't have any more. So she asked me about adopting. And, you know, initially I was like, you know, why do we want to put ourselves out there for that? I've heard so many horror stories about adoption. Why do we want to do that? You know, our youngest son, Mason, um, love him to death. But the first year of his life, he was miserable. He was colic to the T. I mean, you could have wrote the book about colic, uh, when it came to my son, Mason. So I said, to her, I said, listen, if we do this and we have another baby like Mason, we're going to have some problems. Um, but anyway, so long story short, um, we wanted, she wanted, we wanted a girl. We had put in our, put ourselves out there. We were, you know, in the registry, so to speak, for for, for prospective moms to start um, considering us. And uh, it just so happened that uh, my wife, I was in spring training. My wife was home. She met this young girl at a restaurant here in Atlanta who was pregnant. And they got to talking, and she was going to put the baby up for adoption. And, you know, they just struck up a conversation the whole nine yards. And, you know, inevitably, she decided she wanted us to be the parents. So you talk about a God wink. Uh, you know, and God having his hands on something. So for the longest time she thought she was having a girl and we thought we were having a girl. And then at the eight month ultrasound, uh, we found out she was not having a girl. Uh, so all the pink stuff my wife had bought, we had to replace with blue. Uh, but I got, I mean, what a blessing, you know, it's, you wonder, you know, people always ask, Oh, do you, can you love an adopted child as much as you love your own? I'm, I'm here to tell you firsthand, one thousand percent. I mean, he has been such a blessing for our family. Um, you know, our, our older kids loved having a younger one around, and they doted on him. They took care of him. Uh, it's been great for my wife and I uh, because it 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 keeps us from being empty nesters. Mm-hmm. Um, it 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 made the pain for my wife of everybody leaving the nest and going to college a little bit more bearable because we at least had one more at home. Uh, but like I said, he's been, uh, he's just been a blessing. He really has He's been such a great addition to our family. And, and when you look back at, like I said, my initial thoughts of, you know, why are we going to do this? Why do we want to put ourselves out there? We're in a pretty good position. Our kids are older. We can do what we want now. I, I couldn't imagine life without them. Uh, so it's, it's just been, like I, I keep saying the same thing. It's been a blessing, but it truly was a situation where God had his hands on it. And, uh, it, it's just been unbelievable.
0: Wow, that's awesome. And, and, Tom, real quick about the color pink. You know, De Niro rocked it well in Casino, you know, with the pink jacket. So, hey, men can wear pink. Listen, I've got plenty of pink golf shirts. I'm not opposed to it. So, <laughs> Well, whoa, whoa. Mr. Tom Glavin, I want to say it is an honor and a privilege to have you on Where They At. Um, your insight your knowledge your graciousness I mean just it's, it's wonderful you exude so much and, and I enjoy watching you play uh, and I enjoy also like how you really have really meant so much to the game and I thank you so much for being on Where They At thank you for the honor to talk with you my pleasure thanks for having me thank you all for listening to the 27th edition of Where They At with the great Tom Glavin you know the second Tom, terrific. First was Tom Seaver, and just a terrific individual. Uh, what knowledge, what insight that he provides and, and definitely one of the classiest individuals for sure in the history of Major League Baseball. Great to have him on. And yes, if you want to listen to more great content featuring Hall of Fame caliber athletes, check me out. Subscribe and or follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play, definitely you could be able to to listen to past episodes as Tom Glavin was the 27th episode of Where They At, so you can hear the other 26 episodes of Great Individuals and and the wonderful things that they shared on the show for sure. And if you like the music that you currently hear, you can uh, check it out on my website, which is N-A-B-A-T-E-I-S-L-E-S. That's nabateisles.com to check out uh, music from my album, Eclectic Excursions. You can definitely download and or stream the music. It's all on all digital music platforms. So you can definitely check that out as well. And also check me out... On Catropolis Radio Network, um, my show streams every Monday night at 8 p.m. on Catropolis. So check that out. Catropolis is spelled C-A-S-T-R-O-P-O-L-I-S. Catropolis Radio Network as well. So thank you all for listening to where they at. Once again, my name is Nabate Isles. Be safe. Be blessed. Stay woke. Black lives matter. And and keep really focusing on being great to each other and being compassionate and empathetic. Thank you all, everybody. Talk to you soon. God bless. Take care.